Welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. I am your host, Aaron Erber. This is a podcast about stories, myths, and the Catholic faith. Hey everybody, this is I Might Believe in Fairies, and uh, we're back, and today I have as a guest um, someone who's, we've been kind of corresponding a little bit for a few months, um, we've been following each other on Twitter and stuff like that, um, and on Facebook too, I think we're friends on Facebook, I think it's both, um, so that's kind of fun. Um, so I have Cameron Dixon here, um, and today we're going to talk about, um, among other things, uh, C.S. Lewis's essay, Myth Made Fact. And uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, uh, participating in stories uh, in our in our lives um, and with what mythology is. And we're just going to take a deep dive into all that stuff. So, Cameron, tell us about yourself. Uh, give us a little bit of a background about yourself and uh, why, uh, you, how you got interested in, in wanting to t- in uh, talking about mythology and, and uh, all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Aaron. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I've been following your show for a little while now i just recently discovered it uh, sometime last year i think mm-hmm. over the summer and there's not that many podcasts out there that are doing things that i'm interested in as far as like mythology but then combining that with christianity and talking about tolkien and lewis and some of the other great um you know authors of the last couple hundred years so when i found your podcast it was just like oh man this is this is awesome getting to actually just <laughs> Thank you. Exactly what I'm interested in. So, no, I, I'm just really excited to get to talk to you today. So, yeah, as you mentioned, my name's Cameron Dixon. I'm a Catholic, I'm a husband, and a father of two children. I'm a software engineer, and then also in my free time, I'm a writer. I have a blog that I recently turned into a Substack that I've been writing to for the past couple of years. And I focus on a variety of different topics over there, um, you know, things like religion, uh, philosophy, symbolism kind of just trying to contribute in what little way I can to that corner of the internet that's talking about meaning and kind of this recovery and this sort of renaissance that's been happening uh, with a lot of people kind of returning to a religious way of thinking, a symbolic way of thinking. And I actually just recently uh, wrote an article for the Symbolic World as well, although it hasn't been published because their website's been kind of under construction for the past couple of months. Right, right. Uh, I think we'll maybe get a chance to talk about that article uh, a little bit later. But yeah, that's a little bit of background on me and and what I've been doing the past couple of years. Uh, Yeah. Awesome. So before, I think before we get into, uh, well, before, before, before the before, um, I do remember you uh, talking about an essay in the symbolic world, and I wasn't asked about that, but I couldn't remember if that was you or somebody else. But I'm glad, I'm glad it was you, um, and I'm looking forward to reading that when uh, that that uh, website finally gets uh, fixed or updated or whatever they're doing, whatever Jonathan Pajo is doing. Um, so before we get into myth made fact, um, you have a background. Um, this might this might come in a little bit, but uh, to the conversation. But you have a background in phenomenology, um, or you at least even interest in phenomenology. Um, why don't you give a very brief overview of what phenomenology is? And um, I think people like St. John Paul II was uh, into phenomenology, and like um, um, other philosophers like that. I mean, Jonathan Pajo is another one. Um, but yeah, just kind of give us, because I'm, I'm a little at, at a loss as to, what, as to what phenomenology actually is. 
Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So I definitely think your second description was was more accurate. I would say I have more of an interest <laughs> in phenomenology than a, a background in it. Um, you know, I, I, I went to a, a liberal arts school for my undergrad. And so philosophy and, and theology have always been a part of my academic education. But I really only became interested in phenomenology uh, probably about a couple of years ago, reading some of the authors that you had mentioned. Uh, JP2 and, and Dietrich von Hildebrand, uh, Edith Stein, otherwise known as St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross. Um, but yeah, phenomenology is somewhat of a newer, it's hard to call it a philosophical school because it's really more of a way or a method of doing philosophy and approaching, looking at the world. Um, but it, it's a bit of a newer school, so a lot of people aren't as familiar with it. So mm -hmm. just to give maybe the, the least helpful definition that I possibly can. Phenomenology is really essentially the study of phenomena. Yeah. And what that means it, by phenomena are the elements of experience. And so phenomenology, therefore, approaches the world by attending to conscious experience, you know, our conscious experiences as people who are, are being and acting in the world. And investigating the contents of our conscious experience so things like values uh perception emotions and meaning things that um are obviously going to be very closely related to storytelling as i think we'll get into in a little bit so yeah you know like i said phenomenology is not really easy to define because you know as i mentioned it's more of a philosophical method than an actual school but i think that if we just focus on it is the study of phenomena and conscious experience. I think that's a helpful way for people to understand what's going on. Now, it's also important, I think, to, to mention that sometimes people are a little bit suspicious of phenomenological thinking because they feel like it can wander into subjectivism mm -hmm. um, or maybe have uh, a bit of a postmodern flavor to it. And to that, I would just say, it's a bit of a low resolution way of, of thinking. Um, there's certainly problems that happen when you, you get into postmodernism and, and that's by all means uh, not what phenomenology is. But one of the things that I would say that postmodernism got right was this return to looking at the world through the lens of the subject yeah. and returning to the conscious experience that we all have. You know, it's kind of an unavoidable um, fact that we have access to the world through our subjectivity through our subjective experience of the world mm -hmm. and that by no means denies the objective way that reality is but we have to of course attend to the conscious subject in order to make sense of what it means to be a person to experience reality objectively and so you know on, on the one hand there's really two problems regarding this self that can happen when you're thinking philosophically one is you can fall into a kind of solipsism like descartes where you start with the self you start with the subject and you have a problem trying to get back out into the world right you know if you're going to take descartes approach with you know his famous cogito the i think therefore i am you're going to have a hard time getting from that principle that first philosophical principle back out into objective reality to experience it now on the other hand when you start with the world like a materialist might trying to get back from the world back into yourself and understanding what consciousness is, what it means to have identity and to experience things in the world. You, you can have a, a difficulty going in the other direction when you start from a more materialist way of thinking. And 
And so phenomenology really bridges the gap between the two, which is to understand that we're conscious subjects and we are in a world experiencing it through our subjective experience, but we're experiencing that objective reality and we're coming into contact with it. Mm -hmm. And so from a Christian perspective, of course, you know, we're creatures made in the image of God and that reality gives meaning to our subjective experience, right? We don't want to ignore that. And that's really what the project of phenomenology is all about, is attending to the subject. Gotcha. I think yeah, the one of the more uh, interesting aspects of phenomenology, uh, one, of the, or one of the more interesting writings, I think it was Jonathan Paggio uh, who wrote um, something like, it's an, an, an article about uh, most of the time the earth is flat. Is that right? Um, which yes, is a, a, I've read it. It's, it's exceptional, yeah. It's it's amazing, yeah. So he basically argues that it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter that the world is round, like because we perceive it as flat. You know, obviously it's self evidently true. Like you just perceive it as flat, and that perception of it as flat has a meaning. Like that is we perceive it that way for a reason. And I don't know how like at that square. And I think he's got a point. Like I don't. That doesn't, I don't know how that squares with the world actually being round, like in, in actual fact being round, but maybe maybe that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today, like this idea of our perception versus fact and like a myth versus fact, like because C.S. Lewis kind of brings that up in, in, um, in um, myth-made fact, is this idea of there's, there's myth and then there's the, the stuff that flows down from myth which is fact, like the facts on the ground, you know, which is a phrase that's actually, as I think about it, kind of appropriate. Like, we're out, like if myth is the mountaintop, then facts are the ground, right? Like, that's kind of like, I don't know, something like that. I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around these things. I'm really interested in them, but like, but I'm, this, this, this kind of stuff is one of those, like, these ideas that you kind of understand on an intuitive level, like, but you can't, at least for me, I find it hard to get into words. Um, the the difference between like myth and fact, and and how they relate to one another, and our like how our how our subjective experience does actually because we, we do we interact with the world, right? We interact with the world, but I'm not you, and you're not me, so we interact with the world in in different ways, you know. Uh, but we're still human, so that there's this commonality there, and our perceptions are are we can relate to one another with our perceptions and how we um, how we observe the objective world i guess um because i i know there is a lot of some pushback that yeah it does it can like slip into some sort of like relativism you know um but i i think if you do it if you do it carefully you can avoid that right so it's, it's yeah. It, yeah it's very very interesting yeah absolutely. we all because we're modern people and you know we're a product of our times we all approach the world with, I think it's unavoidable. We just have this materialist yeah, baggage right? That, that we're trying to approach the world with this sort of empirical uh, facts based. Everything's quantitative and qualitative. We're trying to measure everything. This right. very scientific understanding of reality. And so when you suggest to people to take a step back and return to the subject and to conscious experience and what it means to be a person, what it means to experience the world as a person, it can be a little destabilizing for people. and But, you know, as Joe's article on the flatness of, of the earth, I think is it's brilliant because it really highlights the reality that our whole lives are structured 
around our experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can maybe to use another example, um, think of how the, the sun in our experience moves over and across the sky throughout the day. Now we know scientifically from, you know, modern astronomy that that's not the case, um, that it's really the earth moving around the sun, but we structure our whole lives and the pattern of our lives and our day-to-day activities when we wake up, when we go to sleep is all patterned after this movement, this experience of the sun kind of crossing over the sky over our head every day. And of course, it's a very ancient way of thinking about, about the world. And it's important to not ignore that fact because the, the reality that it's really the earth, moving around the sun doesn't really enter into our conscious experience in our day-to-day lives. Now, I'm sure it, it's, of course, relevant for certain scientific you know, right. activities, things that, that scientists are doing, astronomers are doing. Um, but when it comes to our daily experience of living in the world, whether the world is round, whether it's flat, whether the sun you know moves in the sky over us or we move around the sun, these are really need to be approached through an understanding of what it means to have uh, an embodied experience in the world, right. and to be able to understand that we perceive reality from a certain perspective, and that shapes how we actually act out in the world. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so does that... Um, so you, uh, just to go off the notes here, um, your next, the next point was understanding the narrative view of history. So, um, yes. did you, so does that, does that kind of tie into that? Cause I, in my head, I'm thinking like this, this, this connects us to the ancients, right? This way of perceiving the world. We still perceive the world the same way everybody's been perceiving the world since Adam, right? Like, um, and, but, and I, I'm a scientist, right? So I, I'm, I have a, I have a master's degree in entomology, right? I, so I'm, I'm in the sciences and I, I understand this like this confusion or this because i live it like this this like um what do you call it the, um like cognitive dissonance right almost right so it's you know what you thought the earth it, the earth moves around the sun but it like we know that but the actually you know if we were really getting into it and the theory like i think it's general relativity um Einstein had some interesting insights as to are they both stationary? They're both moving. They're both doing this, you know, so it's like, you know, um, anyway, that's kind of beside the point. But like we we know the Earth does move, you know, it does have a rotation. And but that's not our perception. So like how like why? Like how how do we square those things? Right. That's that's what I I find really frustrating um, is that all of this scientific knowledge we have doesn't square with how we live our lives. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's so disconnected from yeah. the actual experience. And I, I don't want to, again, I'm also a scientist. I'm a software engineer. That's right. what I do all day, every day. So I work with technology. And it, but it's a very disconnected way of thinking about the world. Right. right. It's, it's another example might be, uh, you know, just to not get too controversial is uh, people argue all the time about the age of the earth, right? right. Are you a young creationist? Are you like a theistic evolutionist? Do you believe the earth is X number of million or billion of years, billions of years old? And that, you know, that debate has obviously been going on between Christians and atheists and even Christians and other Christians. Right. And, and you know, I, I even saw people talking about it on Twitter today and I just roll my eyes because it's the most boring argument to me because yeah. 
you know, of course the theologians are going to get in and they're going to have, uh, you know, their opinions about what the actual implications are for theology, but that aside, the whole issue of, you know, whether the earth is, you know, six or 7,000 years old or whether it's billions of years old is kind of a ridiculous question because what would it mean to say that there was billions of years of history before we, we arrive here as, right. as human, as human beings. I mean, we weren't there to experience that. We have no memory of that. It's meaningless. A billion years is basically, it's meaningless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't mean anything. A billion years is basically nothing. Right. We weren't there. We didn't experience it. If it, if it is in fact that old, it's a meaningless amount of time because right. as, as we know, time and duration is really, uh, a relative experience, right? right something right. that we have to actually perceive and, and, and experience as, as people. And so you can apply that same, that same type of thinking to any number of realities about the cosmos, about the solar system, that it really doesn't matter at the end of the day, in terms of our day-to-day experience, whether it's the earth going around the sun or the sun going over the earth. Right. The reality is what we experience is the sun moves over our head. It, you know, goes down, it becomes dark, it comes up, it becomes light, we wake up, we do our thing when it's light, and our whole life, just like ancient people, and just like we do now, our whole life is patterned after this continuous cycle of day and night, right. just like it explains in, in Genesis. And so when you approach everything from that phenomenological experience, it really helps to open up a more ancient and even medieval way of thinking and as right. modern people we've been very much deprived of that you know i think everyone has a sense that we've sort of lost something you know, yeah. modern this, this modern scientific materialist way of looking at the world has really almost poisoned our minds in a way that it's so hard to look at the world not in that fashion and mm-hmm. it's, it's like once the the dam has been opened it's really hard to plug it again right Well, you mentioned before this idea of the narrative or the phenomenological view of history, and this is, of course, related. I mean, there's sort of materialist hangups about this false dichotomy between history and myth. You know, Mm -hmm. we as modern people, we would say history is what really happened, and myth are made-up stories that maybe are, are useful metaphors or have some kind of life lesson in them, but they're ultimately fake, they're lies. Right. And we'll get into that idea of lies later because C.S. Lewis in his in his essay, Myth Became Fact, uh, addresses this, actually getting it from Tolkien who corrected Lewis earlier in his life uh, right, right. regarding this issue. But, but anyway, to, re- to return back to the narrative history thing, if you actually look at the, um, the word history and the word myth, and you look at the etymology of those words, the Latin root historia and the Greek root mythos both mean a story or a tale mm-hmm. or a narrative. So, of course, etymology isn't everything just because, you know, one word has a history of meaning one thing. It really matters how we use it today. But my point is to say that this dichotomy between history and myth is a completely false one because if you look at any kind of historical event, um, you know, that people talk about or study um, just to do something kind of recent and, and a bit cliche, uh, something like World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, you might recount the events of World War II in a history book or in a classroom setting or in a lecture or in, even in a video or a documentary. And 
you know, we may even have, uh, you know, photographic evidence or video evidence of certain historical events. But any recounting of this history is going to be inevitably in narrative form. It's going to be in a story. Because, you know, even though we think of history as being the literal fact of what happened, you know, this is verifiable. We know this happened in X, you know, in X way. Whenever we're telling the story of any historical event, we're always filtering out all of the you know, infinite number of facts that we could be mentioning about any any event. So, you know, take, for example, if you're talking about some battle that happened during World War II, you know, you could say the invasion of Normandy or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to tell that from a certain perspective as Americans. And, you know, other people from other countries will, will tell that same story from, you know, their perspective. Not to say that, you know, we don't want to be relativistic. We're not saying that one is true and one is not, or they're both true, even if they conflict. That's not the point. The point is that the events that we describe, we're always going to be filtering out the facts and getting towards what is actually meaningful to us. Yeah. So, you know, you can really narrow in on any kind of historical event. You know, you could say, okay, there were X number of soldiers and there were X number of bullets fired. And, um, you know, the battle lasted exactly this amount of time, but you can get even more granular than that and say, you know, this one particular person took, you know, 300 steps and they moved their arm in, you know, X number of inches in this direction. Like there's literally an infinite number of details that you could, uh, then you could present about the literal factual things that happen. But nobody, of course, does that because, again, that's basically a meaningless amount of information. It's a, meaning, right. it's a meaningless event because you're providing facts that have no meaning. And so anytime there's any event that happens, you know, it's something simple like your wife asks you, what did you do today? How was your day? You're not going to go through all of the minute details of every single thing you did you couldn't even you couldn't even remember it right our memory right, right. work this way we don't remember things that aren't meaningful to us and so we can approach this false dichotomy between history and myth and understand that at some level these are actually the same thing because history inevitably has to be presented to us in a story mm-hmm. and we remember events as a story as a narrative as having some kind of meaning to us and we share these stories and we pass them on. And even though there is a degree of, you know, when you're talking about history, there's a degree of wanting to verify which things happened, and which things didn't. Right. Even when it comes to looking at the empirical data, we have to filter out the things that are actually pertinent and are meaningful to, to the story that we're trying to tell. Right. And so, you know, not to be too long winded, but the point really is to say that, this dichotomy between history and myth, which uh, Lewis will get to in, in his, his essay, Myth Became Fact, this is a false dichotomy. History and myth are one and the same thing, and especially in Christianity, uh, where Lewis will argue that not only are history and myth related, but they actually enter into each other into the incarnation. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I think that's that's spot on uh, because yeah we we don't we this isn't this, we inevitably do this we have to even when we're we're saying you know um, we're we're trying to list facts right but like if they if they're not connected to each other in some way 
it, it's meaningless, right? So this is something that uh, we were told when I was getting my master's degree in entomology, we were told to present our data as a story, right? Uh, present it as a story. Um, give it a beginning, a middle, and an end. Like, why is this important? Why is this meaningful for people? So when you're talking to regular people, you're presenting your data, you're presenting your information. Um, that helps it sink in more, right? Um, like, because I could go on and on and on about every single species of bee I collected and all of the, you know, um, like how many, like, uh, Turgites they have how many you know like bits of, of pollen are in each each uh you know each uh, limb or whatever i could do that but it, it's that it's not going to mean anything you know why is this important you know why like that that's something we had to focus on a lot it's like why is this important why are we doing this what's the reason for it so even in the sciences you know we have this it's really funny to me because like they kept saying you can't anthropomorphize things stop ascribing like human like uh, attributes to like, to these um, to to animals like you can't say they want things because they don't want things and I'm like that's ridiculous uh, of course we have to do that that's the only way we could talk about this stuff we can't you know there's no other way to talk about it otherwise it's 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 so abstract it doesn't mean anything you know like what do you mean that the the ant doesn't want something of course the ant wants something like <laughs> they're not humans but we we have to do that it's it's this inevitable thing because it's like anytime a, um, a scientist will be presenting on something they say well of course i'm anthropomorphizing you know and i they don't actually want this stuff but they can't help but say it you know <laughs> it's just right because we, we approach reality in a in a storied manner in a, in in a human manner you know <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And our, our, we, we can't help, right? We're, we're human beings. We, right. We perceive the world and experience it as human beings. We don't know what it's like to be an ant, right? We right. don't know what it's like to be anything but ourselves. And so we can't help but approach the world in as a narrative that makes sense according to our, our experience in that sense. And, right. and even the way of our perception of objects in the world, whether, you know, trees, cups, you know, computers, whatever, this all happens in a storied manner, right? When we perceive the world, we're not seeing facts. Mm -hmm. We're seeing meaning. We're seeing narrative. If I look at a tree outside, and you're an entomologist, so I right. think you'll appreciate this. When when you see a tree outside, I'm not looking at its atomic structure. Right. I'm not looking at, you know, the type of bare bones material it's made out of. I see something beautiful. I see something good for shade. I see something that I can climb. I see something that makes a certain noise when it blows in the wind, right? Um, you know, you can use the same thing with like a glass of water, for example. I don't right. see H2O in the glass. I see something that's uh, refreshing to drink. I see something that's cold. It's wet. It's any number of things. It's clear, but I don't see the the very bare bones material structure of the objects that I'm perceiving in my environment. And so our, our experience of the world is not centered around facts. It's centered around narrative and meaning. And, mm -hmm. you know, the tree doesn't have significance because of any uh, specific data point about it, but because of what our experience of trees is and what their meaning is to our story, what trees mean to us as human people and our experience of them as we, you know, lived with them our whole lives right, um, right and i can see this is 
why Tolkien so famously had a bit of disdain for technology because mm-hmm. so much of our modern world tends to view things like trees, right? Right. Like the environment as just resources that can be harvested. Right. And that's a very utilitarian perspective, but you know, instead of looking at a forest as this beautiful, but also very mysterious kind of spooky uh, environment, like we see in mythology, modern people view a forest as uh, oh, here's a just a deposit of resources that we can harvest. Right. Um, you know, we can get wood and we can make stuff with it. And that's, a, again, a very modern way of thinking. We've lost that more mythological understanding of looking at our environment in terms of a story. A forest to an, an ancient or a medieval person was just, like I said, a mysterious, perhaps dangerous, um, very mystical environment. But to us as modern people, it's just another thing that we look at in terms of what can this provide for me? What can I use this for? Right. But I think there's a danger, not to get too off, far off the point, um, with like, for example, you, the, the forest, um, there's a utilitarian who views it as just uh, numbers, you know, and resources and, um, you know, take it and process it and use it. And then there's the, I would say probably the more pagan aspect of it is to deify it, right? To leave it untouched. And you see that in, in like the modern uh, environmental movement too. It's like, well, it would be better if humans weren't around, right? We need to leave this unspoiled, you know, unspoiled. Like it's, it's a, it's a monster. It can be a monstrous place. Like it's not unspoiled. <laughs> it's chaotic. Yes. Right. And it's beautiful, but it's also very, very dangerous. And so you have these like two sides of the same coin. Um, uh, one is, you know, use it for all it's worth. And the other one is never touch it, like never, never touch it. You know, it's, it's, ba- it's basically better than us. You know, we can't, can't possibly even use it well. Um, so I think that's, that's really interesting. And it's funny because the, I think the environmentalist, like the, um, the deification of the natural world uh, mindset might be more fruitful, you know, for these kind of discussions. Uh, than the utilitarian, because the utilitarian, like, uh, um, I'm always reminded of, like, uh, have you ever read a Brideshead Revisited? I have not, no. Okay, there's a character in there, his name is Rex Matram, um, and he um, he's going to marry into the family, and they're all flawed Catholics, but they're, the family is Catholic, and so they're um, trying to catechize him, right? And he's not getting it. He's not getting it. He's, his, he's so... Um, I, I don't want to say utilitarian, but he's not quite that, but he's so flat as a person that he just is kind of going through the motions, not really understanding why, what they're saying. He just wants to be done with it and like move on and like just get married and whatever. He And he it's just kind of going in one ear and out the other. And that's kind of what reminds like the utilitarian sort of mindset reminds me of just like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. Just let me get what I want out of this and and uh, leave me alone. Um so, I really like your your point about the other side of the coin as well with, with people who approach the environment with with almost too much reverence in the mm-hmm. sense that they would go so far as to say it's better if we weren't here to experience it. They almost want to worship uh, it. Is, yeah, <laughs> it's, that's like the opposite of the phenomenological approach, right? Because it's basically saying like I, we shouldn't be here to yeah, witness, you're right. to, yep, you understand, totally. to see these things. But I can't help but wonder, like, what even is a tree if I'm not here to experience it? Yeah. Right? Like, what is what is this thing that, um, you know, it, it's a classic 
philosophical question if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around does it make a noise right and like the answer to that is no it makes vibrations in the air and sure but it's not right. making a noise because i'm not there to hear it yeah and, yep. and you know that that sort of hatred of of our being in the world it's it's very much the opposite of of an embodied phenomenological view of of the world and yeah uh, yeah that, that was a great point i'd never really thought of that before but i think that's that's spot on yeah well, yeah that, that just kind of that's what's nice about these conversations they kind of like draw out things like that i in, in my head at least i'm like hey that's that's a good point like oh i said that like wow who would have thought that would have happened um <laughs> But uh, so it might be helpful, I think, to kind of go into a definition of myth. Um, and one of my other guests, uh, Michael Johasky, he has a really good um, definition of what a myth is. Um, so a myth is basically um, a narrated worldview. So it's a world it's a worldview told in a narrative form. Um, and it's it's one that embodies the very message it seeks to communicate. Other other you know, in other words, the myth is the message. So like the actual form of the story in part is the message. Um, and then he has a quote here. Um, so myth, so he, he's quoting Tolkien, myth is at be- at its best when it's presented by a poet who feels rather than makes explicit what his theme portends, who presents it as incarnate in the world of history and geography. Um, so, and then uh, what does that mean? He, Tolkien means that when we let the myth remain what it is, a story, then we are experiencing a principle concretely. Um and it kind of so Flannery O'Connor has another quote um, uh, so about stories. Um, some people have the notion that you read a story then climb out of it into the meaning, but for the fiction writer himself, the whole story is the meaning because it is an experience, not an abstraction. So I think that those kind of come together to get at what what c s. Lewis is talking about in that essay um so in in his essay, the myth became fact, or myth made fact, and that's from his uh, the God in the Dock book. I think it's a series. I haven't I haven't actually read that book. I've read this essay a number of times, um, but uh, I've not read God in the Dock. Uh, but yeah, I believe it was post uh, published after his death. I think it was published in 1970. Okay, in the 60s. So it was published after his death, and it's just a collection of different essays that he he had written that were collected after he had. He had died. I, I also have not read the the full God in the Dock, but I have read this this essay a number of times. It's just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So maybe um, we can jump into that. Um, and I also want to talk about your Santa Claus. I want to talk about Santa Claus a little bit. Um, we'll, we'll we'll get around to that though. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, so myth. The myth is the message. So the story is the message. And he. So so C.S. Lewis. Uh, gives the example of Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, it's the story of Orpheus. It's you know a very famous story. Um, Eurydice, I think, is a wood nymph. Um, and she gets bitten by a snake and dies. They get married uh, and they fall in love and get married. You know all that stuff. And she gets bitten by a snake and dies and goes to Hades. And Orpheus is a musician. And when he plays his lyre, um, even the stones dance. Right. So um, he. Long story short, he goes down to Hades. He finds um, finds Hades, you know, um, and plays for him. And Hades agrees to release Eurydice, but on a condition you can't. He can't turn around and look at Eurydice um, 
until they're out of hell, until they're out of Hades. And he can't he can't help himself, so he he turns around and, and looks to make sure she's still there, and she disappears, never to be seen again. Um, and uh, Lewis is using this as an example to you know uh, um, when we experience the, a myth, you know we can't experience something and apprehend it at the same time, right? That's as soon as you try to do that, you lose the experience. Um, like he says, you can't, you know, if you're, uh, um, not to be too crass, but if, if you're uh, making love and you, you, can't, you can't really be thinking about, you know, what is love, what is pleasure when you're actually doing it, right? It's, it's, um, uh, or if you're, you know, getting your root canal, you can't really experience, think about, well, what is the meaning of pain? Because you're in a horrible pain while you're, while you're doing it, right? So you can't really do that. But a myth is a way to kind of bridge those two things. Um, and I want to know why that is. So from a phenom- like you're in phenomenology, um, is there any insight that you have that would that would kind of get at why that would be? Why is a myth able to do almost do both? It's not a it's not a complete solution, but it's it's like almost a partial one because you when you're experiencing the story, you kind of see you can kind of apprehend the meaning of the story as you're reading it or experiencing it. Yeah, it's a tricky question. Um... You know, one of the things that I, I think is, again, a symptom of, of the times that we live in and just all of this baggage that we've been, been handed on, um, you know, just from the way that people have been progressively moving into a disenchanted worldview for the past several hundred years, mm-hmm. is we tend to abstract things and then try to analyze them as if we're not a part of them. And so when, when it comes to looking at the world, I would say the, the number one problem with the modern person is that they try to interpret the world as if they're not in it. Yeah. They try to pretend they're looking at reality purely objectively from no <laughs> perspective. Right. But the problem is there's there's no view from nowhere. Nonetheless, we, we have a tendency to look at things like mythology, myth, story, symbolism, and we try to analyze them from the outside as if we're not embodied in a story ourselves, which is very interesting because ancient people wouldn't have, I don't think thought of myth explicitly the way that we do. Like we have a category for it right. and we can kind of put it in its own little box. And then we think about it. What is myth? What does it mean? How do we define it? It's a very modern way of looking at the world. I think the same is, is true of symbolism. I mean, speaking of, of Jonathan Peugeot that we talked about earlier, he talks about that a lot, that, the fact that we need to talk about symbolism is itself a symptom yeah. of the disenchanted world that we're living in. Yeah. And so when it comes to what C.S. Lewis and Flannery O'Connor and Tolkien are saying about myth here, I do think they're, they're spot on because myths are really our story. They're stories that define us, who we are, why we're here, where we're going. They deal with cosmic realities like life, death, creation, eternity, reality, all of these different things. But when it comes to how we can apprehend and experience them at the same time, I think the concept of trying to apprehend something sort of detached from our experience of it is, again, a more modern hang-up. So we can think about, um, I I do think that uh, making love is a great, actually, (laughs) 
<laughs> example for, for these things. And it was C.S. Lewis's <laughs> example. I didn't come up with that. It was blame C.S. Yeah, Lewis. No, yeah, and, I, and I, to prove what it's worth, I don't think it's crass at all. I think it's, no, no, it's, it's an extremely meaningful experience <laughs> that, that most people And we're both married. <laughs> we are both married, and, and, and I have children. I, I believe you do as well. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah, I'm going on so, four now, yeah. so... Well, wow, yeah, I only have two, so you're, you're crushing it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but anyway... More like I'm being crushed, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you can think of... I'm trying to think of the, the best way to word this. You can, you can think of it this way. When I say that I know my wife, mm. I don't mean that I can, like, logically give you like all of these facts about her right it's a very intimate knowledge that i have and that we have of each other because of our experience of living together mm-hmm. of being in communion when we think of you know saying that i i love my wife i'm not making some kind of propositional statement about about her mm-hmm. it's very much a what i mean a participatory knowledge that because her and i live so closely together in such an intimate relationship that that's going to give us the kind of knowledge that you could only know through communion through through close participation together right now again we have such a tendency of grouping all knowledge into this propositional you know if x then why mm-hmm. and we try to make everything extremely logical but the problem is that some things just can't be understood in that way there's some things that you you can't know unless you experience them which mm-hmm. is not really apprehending so much as it is a participation in in the experience and in the being of that thing paul mentions this actually in his essay on fairy stories where he talks about He's talking about trees and trees are just such a great Tolkienian example. Yeah. Because he yeah. loves trees so much. And I know you obviously love trees so much as yeah. an entomologist. So it's amazing. But, you know, there's things about trees that you can obviously know if you cut them down and you dissect them and you look at them under a microscope and you measure them. But you're never going to be able to understand what it feels like to lean up against a tree and read a book or to climb a tree or right. to hear it blowing in the wind. You're not going to learn those things under a microscope. You're not going to learn those things by trying to measure it. You're going to learn those things by being in communion with the tree. Right. By experiencing it as a person, experiencing its beauty and what it means to you. And so when it comes to myths, I think that we really need to let go of this idea that we need to analyze these stories as if we're not already imbibed in our own story. Mm-hmm. Going back to the idea of history and myth being one and the same, I, I really do think that this is what Lewis is getting at when he talks about myth became fact. That in Christianity specifically, because we truly believe in the reality of the incarnation, right? We truly believe that God became man and everything that that means. We really believe that the myth of Christianity enters into reality so fully that that there's no longer any difference between the two. And that's a very uniquely Christian way of viewing the world. Right. Right. Other other cultures, you know, ancient myths had these stories and they understood them, but there really is not the same type of 
incarnational worldview that you see in the Christian story and in our continuing participation in it. And I think that's that's the beauty of Christianity is that we fully live in the story of Christ in our day-to-day lives, right? We name our children after the saints. We decorate our houses with sacred art. We fast, right? right. We, we live liturgically. We have a pattern to the way that we live. We fast and we go to the liturgy every week. We ritually celebrate the feasts of the church, right? You know, again, speaking of all those Catholic phenomenologists like Pope John Paul II and Dietrich von Hildebrand and mm-hmm. Edith, Edith Schein, they are so they're so captured by the the reality of our experience of the story of Christ in our day-to-day lives um, and how every element of our existence is really a participant, excuse me, a participation in the story of Christ in our entire lives are revolving around this, right? This is not just this abstract thing that we read right. and try to analyze it and apply it to our lives. Our lives are totally intermingled with it. Right. Well, I think I in my notes here. Um, so he so myth myth is the partial partial solution to uh, what Lewis calls our dilemma: either to taste and not to know, or to know and not to taste. Um, so that you know, experience like um, living living the experience, and then compared to apprehending it and trying to understand it. And um, Lewis said there's a myth i think i think he meant myth yeah myth is the marriage of heaven and earth uh perfect myth and perfect fact um and i i want to know so you mentioned liturgy so we are so liturgy we are experiencing liturgy when we're when we're there right when we're when we're participating in it um and i attend a um uh you know the the traditional latin mass right so um you don't think, you know, when you look at that and you look at like a, the newer mass, um, you don't, it doesn't look like we're participating as much, right? Because <laughs> we're quieter, we're sitting there, or I kind of, I want to get rid of pews. That's my big thing. I don't like pews anymore. And now, now, now that I have like almost four kids, like pews are a nightmare. Anyway, um, <laughs> like you just, you're just trapped in these wooden yeah. prisons, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're, you're exploring Eastern churches, so you probably, appre- you probably appreciate the open spaces in, in those yes. buildings, right? Um, so anyway, but uh, we, are, we actually are participating in the liturgy when we're there, right? Even just being there, we're participating in it. We're, we're there, right? Um, you don't have to be singing the songs. You don't have to be, um, like, cause 90% of the time, I'm dealing with a child, right? So um, if I can open my missile and pray at all, like, it's, that's... That's a, that's a win, you know, um, but we're there, we're experiencing it. Right. And we're participating in that. And, but if we're paying attention, if we can, if we don't have kids or if they're grown or if they're particularly well behaved, which doesn't always happen, um, we can kind of read what's going on and follow along and we can kind of apprehend it at the same time as we're experiencing it. Right. So is liturgy mythic in that sense? Would you say? I would say absolutely. Liturgy yeah. is mythic. Um, we have this, phrase, you know, in Christianity, and in, in particularly in, in Catholicism, lex orandi, lex credenti, lex viventi, which means, you know, the law of prayer is the law of belief and the law of how we live, or as we worship, so we believe, yeah. so we live. And what this is really saying is that the liturgy is the divine pedagogy. It's the liturgy is our theology. 
our right. experience of the liturgy tells us what we believe and it tells us how we ought to live. And I think it is it is fully mythic. And if I can say something that might sound sound kind of crazy, but I, I fully believe it's true. I truly believe that the liturgy is the closest contact you have with reality that we experience in yeah. our day-to-day lives. And I, I don't think I'm really alone in saying that. Pope Benedict XVI, you know, of eternal memory, said the same thing in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, that the liturgy has a cosmic function, that it really is giving us reality in its most refined form. Right. And it, it is, of course, in the Eucharist, the most, it's the most complete meeting of heaven and earth that we can experience today, that, you know, we right. truly believe Christ becomes incarnate, and we truly believe Christ is present to us in the Eucharist. Um, and, you know, I definitely don't want to to pick on any of our, our Protestant friends, but I don't think that it's a mistake that the Enlightenment and the disenchantment that followed it was preceded by the Reformation and, you know, even before yeah. that, by the debates uh, about the real presence of the Eucharist. I mean, right. the Eucharist is the most enchanted that you can get. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. When, when you start to deny that true participation in the story of Christ, that we truly receive his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, the whole world starts to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I think the liturgy is, is not just mythic. I think that it it is, it is the myth. It is just the fulfillment of what myth is, is the Christian story and, and how we participate and experience that through the liturgy. Yeah. And when I, when I'm participating in the liturgy, um, you know, I, I grew up, um, kind of nominally Catholic, right? And my, my parents, my mom's side was Lutheran and my dad's side was, uh, Catholic. And, um, so I'd go to both churches, right? A lot of the times so my, I'd go up and visit my grandparents. Um, and then I, if it was a Sunday, I'd go with them to their service. Um, and you know, if I was at home, I'd usually go to the mass, right? The Catholic church. But it was the newer mass, so I mean there are a lot of similarities between the newer mass and the the Protestant churches. You know, I'm just gonna say that there there are they're very similar and uh, not necessarily theologically similar, but it, in structure they are. Um, and but now when I discovered the the Latin the traditional Latin mass, you know the the Ursus Antiquiter or the, whatever the Latin is, um, <laughs> I should know, right? I, I hear it all the time, uh, but. It's different, right? It it is different. It feels different. Um, even though it's the same theology, same mass, uh, same Eucharist, right? I'm not denying that the, the Novus Ordo is is licit and and it can be done well. I'm not denying that at all. But, um, you know, if you if you have the idea in your head, this is why I, the 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 Genesis debates about the age of the earth are so friggin' boring, um, because nobody knows, nobody knows Genesis is like the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. <laughs> You know, and as soon as you like learn that, because that's not in Genesis, it's not explicit in Genesis. I mean, it's a little bit there with the rivers flowing down, right? Uh, but when you finally realize that, holy crap, like uh, the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. Um, and that's what we're doing at Mass, right? Uh, the priest ascends the holy mountain and um, we're all at the base, right? It's like Moses going up, you know, and everybody else is down, down at the bottom, um, but we're all we're, we're all there. We're all participating, 
in that. And we're all facing God. Um, and the priest is, is you know, he's a, as Christ in persona Christi. He is, um, it, you know, uh, not reenacting. That's not the right word. Um, but we are participating in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And you don't get that in the Protestant you know, uh, services, Protestant liturgy, and you do get that in the Novus Ordo, but it's not as, it's not as like symbolically coherent. So it's, um, what was I saying? Um, with these, with these myths, um, the reason the liturgy is mythic is because we are participating in that myth, you know, when we're there. And if mythology is about distilled, you know, uh, you get rid of all the extra stuff. This is this is reality. You know, this is reality, and it takes the form of a story, and we're participating in that in the liturgy. Um, but we're also yeah, apprehending exactly it right. at the same time, right? Uh, through through experiencing it, we can apprehend it. Um, yeah, it's that's amazing. Spot on. And, and one of my favorite <laughs> works from the Church Fathers is uh, Saint John Damascene's uh, Fount of Knowledge, and it's just a brilliant work because. It, it contains multiple different sub works of his, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the philosophical chapters and the exposition of the Orthodox faith and, and some other stuff uh, against heresies. But in the very beginning of the philosophical chapters, he's laying out this very, very participatory understanding of what it even means to know. Yeah. And he's who I really draw on to, to flesh out this idea of, knowledge being a participatory not a propositional thing and you know we come to knowledge through communion with the logos through communion with christ and you know this is historically just the unique claim of christianity is that the truth the logos the perfect order and 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 fount of reality is not just a concept it's a person right right it's someone that we come into communion with it's not this non-personal force or like you know deistic type of of thing it's actually a person that we come into communion with right and saint john damascene in his fount of knowledge it's called the fount of knowledge because his whole point is that christ is the fount of knowledge all knowledge all knowing comes and flows through christ um and there's this great quote where he says right in the beginning of the book he says it meaning our soul does not, however, have knowledge and understanding of itself, but has need of one to teach it. So let us approach that teacher in whom there is no falsehood and who is the truth. Christ is the subsistent wisdom and truth, and in him are all the hidden treasures of knowledge. And then he later goes on to say that true philosophy is the love of God. And I think this is yeah. such a brilliant and utterly Christian Thing that he is saying right like our knowledge is not coming just from our use of reason alone it's not coming from logic alone it's coming from our relationship with christ with mm-hmm. god that all knowledge all way of knowing is coming from the fount of knowledge who is god who is christ it, it's just so be- it's such a beautiful and profound statement and i think that it's it's so key to understanding what's happening in the liturgy when we're experiencing it with all of our senses when you know, you're seeing the the mass, the liturgy being performed, when you're listening to the readings, when you're smelling the incense, when you're tasting the Eucharist. This is a fully embodied experience. Right? We're yeah. fully entering in with, with every 
faculty that we have into this myth, into this story that has become fact, that has mingled with our history. And that's Lewis's whole point, that it, it becomes fact, it becomes tangible. And through that experience, we come to know Christ and we come to know the truth through our experience of the liturgy. Right. And yeah, it's this incarnational, and that's one of those buzz, buzzwords, right? Uh, but I think... Um, I think I finally understand what incarnational means. I mean, I know what the incarnation is, right? But like incarnational is, I think, this is my understanding, it's when these mythic patterns get kind of, they're made concrete and physical, right? Like that's, and and, and that's why Flannery O'Connor and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and, and authors, uh, again, my obligatory Tim Powers reference, Tim Powers, um, he they all write these incarnational stories where the, these patterns, uh, the Christian story is kind of like embedded in the physical, uh, reality of what they're writing about. Um, and so I think I finally get what that means because <laughs> it's like one of those bu- buzzwords, you know, it's like, Oh, you, our c- Catholic stories are incarnational. It's like, okay. Yeah. And, um, that's, that's a, that's a $3 word, right? <laughs> so it's, 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 Again, like you kind of understand, like at least for me, I, I I understand it intuitively, and then it's but putting into words that I'm like, okay, that's what this is. This is what's going on. Maybe that's a modern thing, um, and I, it, I'm a very modern person, so I, I you know I like to think I'm um you know a barbarian chieftain from the you know frozen north, but uh, <laughs> but I I am an entomologist in Minnesota, so the frozen north. I got that part, um, but um, I so I have to say, being an entomologist is is it's a very it's a very medieval thing like you have a, a very close relationship with trees and, and nature and i feel like bugs yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and animals like people don't appreciate that as much these days so i i would say yeah we're all modern people but we, we're trying to kind of recover what was lost in in, in, in tolkien's way of, of understanding recovery right like we need to yeah. kind of bring back this this gem that we kind of misplaced. Yeah. I, I do think what, what you're saying about incarnation, incarnationality, I just made up that word. Um, <laughs> it's important to understand because you could, you know, we have materialism on the one hand, which is how most modern people think. And then you have sort of a Gnosticism, which is like, you know, this world is just an illusion. It has no value. Right. We're just trying to kind of escape into the real reality. And I even feel like many Christians oh, yeah. approach the world in this way. Like right. the, the actual embodied lives we live don't really matter it's all about the afterlife and you know that's not christianity christianity is incarnational in that it's the meeting of heaven and earth right the the earth the world the tangible reality material has value and it's enchanted in the sense that we live in a sacramental reality Mm -hmm. right we're not just material and we're not just spirit we're a union of the two and our entire our entire perspective of the world needs to be seen in light of that that there's a spiritual reality that things have meaning not just because we're making it up it's not like this solipsistic relativistic understanding of the world like we're just right. projecting meaning onto things things have actual objective meaning to us but we experience them as embodied embodied persons we're not we're right. spirits or people and we have a body and a soul when i think um 
So for a lot of modern people, it's really hard to conceptualize what that what that is. Like, what is what does it mean for something to be sacramental, right? What, I don't even know what that word means for a lot of people. Um, and so I think reading fairy tales and um, Lord of the Rings, like I, I've honestly, I've stopped giving people, not that I've given a ton of people like catechetical books or like apologetical books or whatever, if they're a Protestant or if they're an atheist or whatever, I just give them Lord of the Rings, honestly, like, um, or, or it's another piece of fiction that I really think is, is, is beautiful and good. Um, cause I'm, I'm like these authors, they can express it in, in a story better than I can explain it in words. Right. So like Gr- the Grimm's brothers, um, devout Christians, um, and they weren't Catholic, but they had a very Catholic kind of understanding of, of things. Um, and they imbued their stories. Like they, they collected the oral stories from the Germanic folk. Right. Uh, but then they, their theory about how the stories worked was really interesting. And I'm going to have an episode on this, um, with, um, uh, I'm really excited about it. I'm going to do it pretty soon. Um, uh, with a uh, a Jesuit priest who who's been uh, talking about this stuff, but he, um, the the Grimm's brothers had a theory that they these stories had remnants of like an ancient religion, um, and so the project of Wilhelm and Jacob Grimm was to kind of flesh that out. So they would say, okay, well if we change this, this would be this would um, if we add doves in the Cinderella story, well that would. Um, help flesh out this this ancient religion that we are theorizing, you know. So, um, so they 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 did. They, that's what they did. They did that, and they uh, they can be really weird. You read these stories, and they're super weird, right? They're like what? There's like magic, you know. Uh, people getting their 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 toes cut off, um, their eyes gouged out. What's going on? These are really violent and, and like. Um, but it all has a purpose, right? It all has this like deep meaning to it. That um, if you start digging into the story, you can um, kind of piece that together, and um, the weirdness actually has a purpose, right? So um, that's what I've been doing for people. I'm like, just read these. Yeah, they're weird. Just kind of be patient with it, and uh, you know, try to just experience it. Just experience the story, and just try to like put it in your subconscious, let it kind of ruminate, you know, let it like kind of ferment in there, and try to. Um, just meditate on those stories and then maybe you can move up to scripture you know like because that's even wilder right scripture is is wild um and it's a lot more complex um and these stories these grim grim stories are very complex stories they're very very complicated and um and they're very layered um so they're not just like stories we tell kids they're like they're really complex layered stories um so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just I, ranted I totally for a while. I think recovering that sacramental view of the world is, it requires story. And I think Tolkien nailed this in his poem, uh, Mythopoeia. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a very long poem that he actually wrote in response to C.S. Lewis, who said that, you know, very early on, before his conversion, before he had been moved toward. Tolkien's understanding of myth, Lewis called what he would say uh, lies breathed through silver. Right, is what he what he called mythology, um, and it's so fascinating to see later on how much Lewis's own thought was shaped by Tolkien. And and there's a bit of a, like this apocryphal story about the two of them. Um, you know, back when they were at Oxford together, 
where they took a walk one day and there was this conversation that they had and it's recounted in a few of the biographies on Lewis and on Tolkien, although we yeah. don't have, of course, you know, it was, it was an in-person conversation. We don't have the transcripts of what was said, but I think Humphrey Carpenter gives an account of the story that, you know, is like pieced together from different things that Lewis said, um, you know, where, where Lewis is challenging Tolkien's understanding of myth as, as being real, as being true. Um, you know, Lewis is saying, these are lies. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Mm-hmm. And, Tolkien is just basically giving him, you know, on fairy stories in, in the conversation, <laughs> this understanding right. of what, what mythology is, how it's true, how we participate in these stories. But he wrote this this poem, Mythopoeia, in response to Lewis's thought on the matter. He even says, like, in the, in the kind of header of the poem, like, to the one who says that myths are lies breathed through silver, which right. is a line that, that Lewis said to him. But he has this one one little stanza of the poem that I, I want to read here because yeah. I think it's it's so key to understanding Tolkien's view of how how we participate in reality and how the world presents itself to us in narrative form. And so he says, "There is no firmament, only a void, unless a jeweled tent, myth woven and elf patterned, and no earth." unless the mother's womb whence all have birth. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. Now, what Tolkien's saying, if you read closely, you know, that that very first line, there's no firmament, only void, Mm -hmm. unless a jeweled tent, myth woven in elf pattern. What Tolkien is saying here is that really, like just the world doesn't exist without story without this myth woven elf patterned world that just our perception of the things around us requires us to be imbibed in some kind of story of some kind of myth of a narrative of some kind mm-hmm. otherwise everything is meaningless and of course you know Tolkien is not a phenomenologist but i think that this is a very phenomenological way of of thinking in our perception of the environment, just to get a little technical for a second, you know, if you look at something, you know, just use like a cliche example, like a table, a table is made out of so many different components, right? Wood and paint, and it's got legs and the top and, you know, screws and all of these different things. But somehow when we, when we look at the object, we don't see its parts. We don't see, you know, the molecules that make it up or anything. We see a structured whole and, you know, if you think about it, we have, again, all of these facts, all of this material that's essentially meaningless until we view it as a specific thing. We give it that unity amongst its multiplicity of parts, and it, it becomes one thing instead of many things. Mm-hmm. And that happens in part because we view reality as if it's like a story. So, you know, you can get to the bottom of materialism at like the atomic level and everything is just particles and, and, and molecules or whatever. But once you get below that, once you get to the bottom of materialism into like quantum physics, yeah, the world becomes narrative again. And we realize the perceiver plays a role in the unfolding of reality and that things actually cohere and, and become unified because of the person perceiving them. Right. right? And they've done many, obviously, experience. Everyone knows it's crazy stuff. 
but to realize that we're part of the story again that's kind of like the you know what you might call like aristotle's revenge or right something. like we, right. we've gone so far into materialism and it's just falling apart in front of us you know <laughs> even the scientists are the one pushing this and they they can't account for it they can't explain it they, they make up these words like emergence and they say like oh like we don't know what consciousness is but we know it it plays a factor in in the unfolding of reality and all of these classical thinkers are like yeah people always thought this way we never viewed the world as if we weren't in it we right. always understood art to be embodied and you know i think this is just tolkien's genius that that he writes this to understand that we need myth myth is inevitable it's going to happen because right. our existence in the world requires us to understand the story that we're living in and that's ultimately ultimately owned by christianity because we're the ones saying that all of creation is a story this is all a a part of of reality mm -hmm. you know this is all one story coming from coming from the logos right right and um i think i had a quote here actually from yeah from uh pope, pope benedict in his his book on the liturgy you know again to come full circle to the liturgy here he says that the goal of worship and the goal of creation as a whole are one in the same divinization but this means that the historical makes its appearance in the cosmic the cosmos is not a kind of closed building a stationary container in which history may be made by chance take place it is itself movement from its one beginning to its one end in a sense creation is history yeah and again a profound statement he's saying that the whole cosmos is this story of creation of divinization of things coming out of god returning back to god they call it the exodus and the reditus this going out from god in creation and returning to him in divinization and that that to me is the sacramental reality that's the sacramental view of the world yeah that's beautiful um we might have time for like one more one more thing. I think what I want to do is um, I really want to talk about Santa Claus. <laughs> and I think I think that um, for those people who maybe you're not Catholic or not Orthodox um, and you have no concept of liturgy and don't know what we're talking about, um, I think your example in your article, um, oh, what was it called? You, you probably know that the title of your article better than me. Um, uh, I just have Santa Claus article yeah, written in there. Yes, Santa Claus is the hypostasis of Christmas. There it is, yes. So I think this is a good example of a participation or, or the way we participate in stories and um, and and other things. So I think that for those who don't, you know, maybe, they, maybe you're not Catholic and you don't understand what we're talking about, this might be more relevant to you. So why don't we go jump into that? So what, what, it, what is your article about? Yeah, so I, I wrote this right around uh, Christmas last year, so yeah. uh, December 2022. And, you know, there's kind of a, a bit of a, I don't really want to call it a meme, but there's uh, an ongoing joke that of people in this, this corner of the internet talking about symbolism and religion to say, Santa Claus exists. Right. <laughs> and it's right. meant to be a provocative statement, um, 
it's meant to make people be like, what are you talking about? Like you're an adult, you're saying that Santa Claus exists. I um, So not to interrupt, but, but I, I, I um, had this conversation with a couple of coworkers. <laughs> And um, they looked at me like I was nuts, and they we moved very quickly away from that conversation. <laughs> so, That's gonna happen, yeah. yeah. As soon as you start to to think about the world in a different way, and you kind of just reenchantment, people are gonna look at you like you're crazy. Yep. But the funny thing is, is that everyone else is crazy. Right. You know, we're, we're just thinking the way that everyone has always thought for most of human history, and we're returning right. back to that. And everyone else is kind of stuck with the the you know, sheets pulled over their face. Right. But anyway, yeah, so my article really is following along the same pattern of, like, I, I don't mean that ironically. Like, I truly believe that Santa Claus exists yeah. in, in a certain way. Right. And so this article was really expounding on, on what I mean by that, how he exists, and what its significance is for us as modern people participating in the story of Christmas and in the story of Santa specifically from a christian lens right so yeah so we could look at at santa claus really as the personification of christmas and of course there's modern caricatures of him you know like we call him the coca-cola polar bear santa which is clearly <laughs> clearly that's more like anti-santa right than actual santa if you think about it, he's all about commercialism he's all about right. making money which is the opposite of what Santa is. So we're going to call that version of Santa Claus anti-Santa. You know, he's like <laughs> the anti-Christ, right? He's the anti-Santa. Right. Um, but we know the, the true story of Christ, or <laughs> now I'm confusing the two, the true story of Santa Claus, obviously having to do with uh, generosity and giving and virtue and very much connected to the Christian feast of, of Christmas. Right. And so when we're talking about how Santa Claus exists in the world, we have to take a look at what is actually happening every year around Christmas time and how we all are participating in this one story, or you could call it the pattern of Santa Claus, right? People dress up, people put presents under the tree, we buy gifts for one another, and we're actually giving body to Santa Claus. And, you know, you can understand him as, as perhaps you could say, a, a principality, mm -hmm. right? This sort of angelic type of being who works and acts through other people, just like an angel or just like a demon would. Of course, I don't think Santa Claus is a demon, but you get what I'm saying. Some some and Christians so, might. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and exactly, that's my point. I'm I don't. Actually, I have some record. friends who are, they don't do the Santa Claus thing with their kids because they think yeah. that it's you know, it's a lie or something. Um, right. And I, I am sympathetic to their concerns about the commercialization of Santa Claus. And, sure. and kind of he's become a symbol that's not attached to his original meaning. However, I think that the problem is not with Santa Claus. The problem is when we separate Santa Claus from the Christian story. And so I, I do think a lot of well-meaning Christians sometimes look at Santa and think that he is taking away from Christ at Christmas. But we have to remember who Santa Claus is. Mm -hmm. He's St. Nicholas. Right. St. Nicholas would never take away from Christ. St. Nicholas is one of Christ's saints. His role, just like all the saints, is to point us back to Christ. And so when we look at 
Santa's role in Christmas, in the Christian feast of Christmas, influencing us, cheering us up, wanting us to be joyful, to be generous, to work on these truly Christian virtues, and to spread what we would call Christmas cheer. It's almost like you can understand it as like a grace that Santa imparts on us. But the important thing to remember is that Santa is always going to point us back to Christ, as I said. But we can see in the story of Santa Claus a fractal pattern of the incarnation. When you look at the symbolic patterns of, of the story of Santa, you know, he lives up north, which could be you know understood as above. It's a you know, it's on top of the world. Yep. And he descends down to us, right? It's sort of like this mini fractal incarnation. And you know, he descends down the chimney to come in and give us give us a gift. And in doing so, in, in preparation for the coming of Santa Claus, it very much is again a fractal version of what we do to prepare for the coming of Christ. Right? You know, at least in, in for traditional Christians, preparing for the nativity, uh, we fast and we pray. And there's a way in which we actually fast and we pray through Santa, you know, right? Yeah. Little kids will write in letters to him and ask him for things, and it will be on extra special behavior, be extra <laughs> disciplined to right. prepare for his coming. It's, it's an extremely religious activity that right. we're taking, taking part in, which it always cracks me up when you have, you know, kind of atheist types who, who do these rituals just like yep. most people do with their children. And I'm like, you don't even see what you're doing, right? You are doing something extremely liturgical, Yep. very, very Christian. You're fasting, you're <laughs> praying, you're, you know, you're, you're doing all of these things. And so one of the connections that I see with Santa that's so potent is, you know, when we understand the historical St. Nicholas, you know, everybody knows about the, the kind of apocryphal myths about him, you know, anonymously giving gifts to people um, who were poor and, and helping them out. He's sort of the, the anonymous gift giver. Uh, that's his mythological pattern. And so we all know those stories about him, like from history that come to mm-hmm. us, like, oh, that's where, where St. Nicholas is. But people forget that St. Nicholas was actually at the Council of Nicaea. You know, he was a bishop that was in attendance there. We have several historical records of, of the different bishops who participated in the, in the First Ecumenical Council. And of course, at that first ecumenical council, they're dealing with um, the divinity of Christ, fighting right. against the Arianism. Is Christ a divine person? And there is an apocryphal legend about St. Nicholas getting so mad at Arius for his heresy that he slaps him across the face. And there's even like icons of this. It's, yep. it's, it's, it's very amazing. fascinating. So you, you see in history, we have St. Nicholas as this defender of the incarnation yep. staunch defender of the incarnation uh, of christ's true divinity and we see even today santa claus saint nicholas is the principality the guardian of christmas he's still protecting christ's incarnation to this day mm-hmm. and of course some stuff gets lost in translation like i said with most modern conceptions of of santa claus and what he is but when you look at the traditional stories and legends and traditions about Santa Claus, he's still very much embodying this Christian pattern and pointing people back to Christ through 
what he's trying to do, the positivity and, and the, the transformation that we're trying to um, accomplish during the Christmas season, right? Everyone talks about being more joyful of spreading Christmas cheer. This is this transformation, this sort of theosis, you know, although I'm hesitant to use that word just because, you know, I don't want people to think I'm saying something blasphemous. I'm really just trying to draw these symbolic patterns, but right. there really is this emphasis that Santa Claus is transforming us, right? right? His presence in, in the Christmas season is spreading and affecting all of us. Just like we would say, you know, Christ's grace, his, his activities, his operations, his energies affect and change us. Right. And in the story of Santa, like I said, it, it's sort of a fractal version of the story of Christ because it's meant to point us back to Christ, to the incarnation. But we see St. Nicholas be elevated from this historical bishop, this figure, to this principality, this yeah. guardian sitting, you know, in heavenly glory with Christ. Um, for those who are familiar with uh, the Lord of Spirits podcast and, and some other podcasts, you know, they talk about things like the Divine Council, mm-hmm. this idea of the communion of saints helping Christ rule over creation. You know, they're they're participating in his works and they're governing the cosmos. Right. That, that's what Santa is. He's the principality who's governing and guarding Christmas. Yep. And we participate in that story ritually every year. Even people do it unwittingly because, you know, they're not necessarily Christian, but they still leave cookies out for him. They still put presents under the tree. They still right. tell their children that he's coming because Santa's, in a sense, inevitable. And we're going to participate in these stories because that's what we do as as human persons. Right. And when we participate in that, we are to put to to um phrase it like Pajot would say we're giving body to santa right so we're we are like his body his agents acting on his behalf you know eating the cookie ourselves leaving putting the presents out you know filling the stockings um so like santa does come to our homes because we're participating in that story um and that's why I'm like, I tell my children, yeah, Santa's, Santa's real. Like, <laughs> are you kidding? He's totally real. And I believe, like, when I was saying that, I, I fully believe that, right? And um, that's how I kind of got into, not trouble, but I got, it was a little bit weird at work when I was, we were eating lunch and they're talking about Santa and they're like, oh yeah, you know, we did that as a kid. But something, they said something, he's like, these aren't real though. I'm like, oh yeah, Santa's real. <laughs> You know, and you can just imagine like they're the looks on their faces like, oh, OK, and they, they like me. They were friends, you know, but like, OK, Aaron's yeah. Aaron's being weird again. He's doing that thing where he talks about weird stuff like, you know, Catholicism and other other things. And he's getting weird. So we're just going to it's going to move the conversation along. Um, but I, th- I thought that that this example of Santa is something that is so profound because everybody Maybe not everybody, but most people, whether you're religious or not, you participate in the story. If you do anything remotely close to Santa Claus, leaving gifts, you know, writing kids, writing letters, you're you're participating in that, you know. And there was a priest on Twitter. His name was Father Brenda the Roach. He said, um, he's not on Twitter anymore, but he said that um, Saint Nicholas's greatest miracle is getting uh, atheists to uh, believe in him for a little while, even if it's just you know, like just going through the motions, like. <laughs> Or something like oh, that. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's so wonderful. Yeah. It's like they're wrong. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. St. Nicholas is getting everyone in America or whoever, wherever they celebrate Christmas to think about Christmas, you know, think about, and then you inevitably think about Christ, you know, at that, at that, uh, at that time too. Uh, so I'm like, yep, that's true. And 
he is a principality, right? So if you understand principalities are they're they they um they're the angelic choir that uh they they usually have there's usually a place involved like um St. Joan of Arc is the patroness of France, right? Um and so she would be a principality. And St. St. Patrick um it's the same thing with Ireland, right? So they're elevated to those spots on the on the divine council and the, the communion of saints because the angels that were supposed to be there fell, or that is, that's one idea, right? They fell, and so those slots are kind of available. And you can have more than one saint filling, you know, that role in, yeah. for a particular country. So it's not like a limit or anything. Um, but Every Catholic church is named after a saint, and they're the patron of that, of that parish, yeah. of, of that parish family. Yeah. Right, exactly. So when you think about it like that, it's like, oh, of course Santa Claus exists, right? I mean, obviously he does. Like, we don't believe that the saints are dead. We believe that they're alive and they're acting in this world now, right? Um, so it's, yeah, it's very, very good, um, very good example, kind of bringing it, making making this stuff we're talking about, because this can be pretty abstract, you know, like what we're talking about and just kind of bringing it home. Like, this is what we're talking about, Santa Claus, <laughs> Every time you eat the cookie, you know, and your kids go to bed, you are being Santa Claus in that moment, right? You, again, I don't want to be blasphemous, but it's like in persona Santa, like or something like that, right? Like yeah, it's it's that's that's, exactly right. that's kind of what it is. Um, and there aren't many things in our culture that that we do that with. I mean, there maybe there are more like more implicit things, but like this is a very real principality that most people, especially in America like live out, you know, at a certain time of year. Um, there's not a whole lot of other things like that, you know, uh, except for maybe like you know, St. Valentine's Day and um, St. Patrick's Day, but mostly people just get drunk, right? So that's not, I don't know if that counts. <laughs> um, but there are there are still some like vestiges um, of these things that we participate in, but not a whole lot. Um, at least not ones yeah, that are right. explicit like this. So. Yeah, and it, it is it is funny when you you do think about all of the people who are are still doing it, still participating in these these Christian feasts. There's so many holidays like that have become secular that yeah. are really just actually Christian feasts. <laughs> Halloween is one, like right. All Saints Day, right. Hallowtide. People, of course, dress up and and do kind of really messed up things on Halloween, but. The reality is just recognizing it as some kind of day that's set apart is making it sacred in some sense. Even right. if you're doing, um, you know, blasphemous or, uh, you know, doing doing some kind of horrible thing on, on those feast days right. or, or making a mockery of it. Like you said, St. Patrick's Day, people getting drunk. <laughs> just the very yeah. fact of recognizing it as a day that's set apart is participating in the story because you yeah. can't invert the story you can't invert the pattern without affirming that the pattern right that's, that's exactly yeah antichrist can't help but point to christ because there has to be something that you're inverting right just the fact that you're inverting it recognizes that it is a thing and it exists yeah i mean it's the same with like the french revolution too where they try to rename the days of the week or like make the seven day to a 10 day week you know and they're reset it at zero this is now we're year zero here it's like okay well, you're only doing that because of Christianity, because you're trying to wipe it out. And so by doing that, you're acknowledging the power Christianity has over over you as revolutionaries, right? Like that's, you can't, you can't get away from it. You, you can, 
the 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 thing to do probably would just be ignore it. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the only thing you could possibly do that would even. But then you're you still it's still there, right? And you just don't participate in it, but you're still kind of participating in it. You know, so there's not really a good way. You can't you can't escape from it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, just the seven seven day week is another way that people unknowingly participate in the story of Christianity. Exactly. The seven days of creation. Right. It's like we don't even think of I like you have Sundays off of work, but you ever one I mean most people know why that's the case. They're right. not they're not that ignorant. They know the the religious reasons for observing Abbott and everything. But right. it's still funny that they don't you know, no one wants to go to work on Sunday. They're still happy to take that sort of <laughs> understanding that's been handed on to them from the christian the christian tradition right and we still live with that pattern that cycle of seven day weeks with the final day being the day of rest it's yeah 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 so that this is this has been a great conversation um so i think i have one more question for you and if you're if you've listened to the show you know what's coming um so this show is called i might believe in fairies and okay, I I th- I believe in fairies. It's fine. I I think I do. You know, I I know I've been saying I might believe in fairies. Blah blah blah. You know, I I I'm yeah. I I believe in fairies. It's fine. Um, uh, but uh, I want to know, Cameron Dixon, do you believe in fairies? Of course, I believe in fairies. <laughs> I didn't expect a different answer. I I kind of knew where that was going. <laughs> so, uh, what do you think they are? Are they angels, demons? Are they like some sort of uh, preternatural? I don't know. What, what do you think they are? I don't know, actually. I've been thinking about this uh, a little bit lately. I know there's a lot of different theories. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Pajot and Richard Rowland have been talking about them a little bit as these sort of neutral, ambiguous principalities. And I, mm-hmm. I haven't looked into the, the sort of tradition and, and some of the different ways of thinking from some of the early church fathers and other medieval literature. So I need to look into it more. I haven't come to a solid conclusion about what they are. Um, I think one of our first interactions on Twitter was actually in a thread kind of discussing this idea of like what fairies are yeah. and um, you know how they're acting in the world. And I actually think I, I discussed some of the principles I was talking about in my, in my article on Santa Claus with a mutual follow of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't really come to a, a full conclusion about what fairies are, but I definitely know that they exist. So yeah, I think that's about as far as I, I can go with it. I wish I could give you a more satisfactory answer. No, I mean, I, I, I don't know either, but they, um, they're, I think there's definitely something to it. And if, if, if it's a, then we're talking about principalities and we're talking about, you know, angelic choirs, you know, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of angels out there and they all do different things. And I, you know, there's, there's got, there's something to it, right? That there's something to it. I think Tolkien had a theory that like the, um, it's it's the like the the spirit of the the thing itself, like the tree. You know, a dryad is the spirit of a tree, right? Um, and as we go further from our like mythic, like as, as we because of the fall, as we drift further from that we don't we can't see them as much right as time goes on or something like that i'm like that's interesting it's an interesting interesting theory um but yeah i think there's something to it i think i believe in fairies um i (laughs) so i can admit it um this has all been a ruse the whole time the show should be i i definitely believe in fairies now um so yeah that's that's really interesting um 
so yeah, that's all I have. Thanks for coming on the show, Cameron. This has been a lot of fun. Hopefully, I didn't keep you up too late. <laughs> no, not at all. This is this is. I love talking about all of this stuff. So I, I'd stay up for you know all night discussing this with pretty much anybody. <laughs> so thank you so much for inviting me on the show. It was it was a pleasure. Um, yeah, this this is this has been great. Yeah, so you you're you get an article in the Symbolic World that'll be coming out whenever they fix their their friggin' website, um, and uh, you have a Substack. And remind everyone what the, what the name of the Substack is. Yeah, it's uh, Practice of Man, which is the handle that I've been using uh, online for the past couple of years. Um, yeah, if you search that on on Substack, you should be able to find me. I don't have a ton of articles on there. I think I have about four or five mm. right now. Um, I have a, a four month old daughter, so ah, I, my congrats. time for writing has been thank you, thank yeah. you. My time for writing has a bit been a bit sparing lately, um, but I am working on some stuff right now. In fact, you inviting me on this show kind of got a few a few different things uh, churning in my brain, and I think I, I might write something up uh, kind of around the lines of what we were talking about. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, that's great. All right. And everybody, remember to uh, please uh, rate and review uh, the show wherever you listen to it. It really helps. Um, not just because I like reading nice reviews. I like that as well. Um, uh, but it helps make the show more prominent and the feeds the algorithm and all that stuff. So go on there and uh, and do that. Um, and then if you really want to give me money, you can go to Patreon. Um, I don't have much on Patreon yet. I'm hoping to change that. <laughs> so I understand if you don't want to do that. Um, that. That makes sense. But uh, if you're feeling generous, you could do that. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's all I got. So thanks for coming. Thanks so much, Aaron. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Might Believe in Fairies. Please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow me on Twitter at Aaron Erber and like me on Facebook. If you're excited to see where the podcast is going and want to offer some support for the project, you can find me on Patreon. Music is by Alexander Nakarada, and podcast art was designed by my wonderful sister-in-law, Linnea Kisby. Until next time, talk to you soon.